Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We are celebrating Bruce Holbert's new novel, Whiskey. It's the story of two brothers, their parents, and three wrecked marriages. A searching book about family life at its most distressed. About kinship, failure, enough liquor to get through it all, and ultimately a dark and hard-earned grace. Bruce Holbert is a graduate of the University of Iowa's workshop. His work has appeared in the Iowa Review, Hotel America, Other Voices, The Antioch Review, Crab Creek Review, and the New York Times. Joining us tonight in conversation with Bruce, following the reading, is Elizabeth McCracken. She is the author of five books, the story collections Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry, and Thunderstruck and Other Stories, the novels The Giant's House and Niagara Falls All Over Again, and the memoir An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination. She lives in Austin, Texas, where she holds the James A. Michener Chair in Fiction at the University of Texas. We're delighted to have them both here tonight to read and discuss whiskey. Please help me welcome Bruce Holbert and Elizabeth McCracken. Thank you. Uh, I want my wife to take a picture of this thing because it's, this will likely be the only time that you'll see my name in capital letters and Elizabeth's name in small letters. And, uh, you know, I realize that that's inverted and I can sort of enjoy it for a few minutes at least. Uh, I want to thank Elizabeth who has been friend and uh, muse and Muse? Muse, muse, and, and also sort of a... You, you know those electrical things they use on cattle to get them to move? <laughs> <laughs> um, she definitely understands how those things work, too. Uh, I'm not sure that between her and my wife, I'm not sure that I would have finished this book if it wasn't for her saying, yeah, but what about whiskey? <laughs> and uh, so, it, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful to see friends and former students, and hopefully new friends here. Uh, one of the wonderful things about these events is that um, independent bookstores are you know, everybody talks about the evil empire of Amazon. Um, independent bookstores are communities. And books like my book, which are books that really rely on word of mouth, uh, because, uh, you know, there's no superheroes or zombies in them. Um, they rely on conversation. And the fact that you're here and willing to engage in that conversation is, uh, you know, never doubt how, that, how much importance that has for writer. Whiskey is a book that started out as a collection. It started out as a single story. And then I had friends who said, those guys are kind of interesting. You should write more about those. And so they cropped up as other stories. Pretty soon I thought, okay, this is a book of linked stories. And then pretty soon I thought, no, they're linked too close to be linked stories. This is a, this is a, a novel. And it just went through several evolutions. But it, it's, a, it's a story about a family, and mostly a, a two brothers and their wives, and uh, their mother and father. And, uh, well, I think to call them dysfunctional is sort of, you know, 
gilding the lily a little bit. Um, they love each other, and through the process of loving each other, they completely screw each other up. And my experience is that that's not completely unusual uh, in families. Um, there are three sections of the book. One section is, is sort of the old family history, which has to do with the father and the mother. One section is, uh, it's, a, it's a more sort of recent history of the two brothers. And then one story is, uh, one section is the story of two, the two brothers going to look for uh, one, brother, one of the brothers' daughters, who their, their, uh, uh, their mother, the mother has taken and taken off, and she's not any more reliable than the rest of them. And so they are, go out on this venture to, uh, to find um, Bird, which is the girl's name. Her name is Robin, but they call her Bird. Um, but like most of the things in their lives, it's not a, it's far from a straight line. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit, and then Elizabeth and I, she's going to ask me some questions I know I can't answer. Um, and then I might read a little more, and then we'll talk. Um, They're on the road here. They've, they've picked up a camper, uh, which is my favorite part of the book cover. And they're headed to they're headed to go find uh, to go find Sis. Um, what happens when we find her? Andre asked. Well, we bring her home. Smoker said. To what? I know how to take care of her, Smoker told him. Andre drank his lukewarm coffee. Why'd you lose her then? Her mother is responsible. Andre chuckled and Smoker stayed quiet. You want Bird because she's yours, Andre said. You ought to want to look after her, and if you can't, you should hunt somebody who will. You don't know having children change. You don't know. Having children changes you, Smoker said. I don't believe it's changed you at all, Andre told him. I'm going to change, he said, once we get her home. Remember when she was a baby? I hauled her everywhere with me. Same can be said about a puppy, Andre said. Uh, Highway 2 sped them through little towns, each with a grocery, a tavern for the hands, a bank for the farmers, a crosswalk, and a school of the basketball team to argue over, along with gas, which everyone needed, so the price was a dollar higher than in the cities. Uh, an hour later, the freeway dropped over Sunset Hill toward the city of Spokane. Maple was the first downtown exit, and Smoker signaled for it. They crossed the toll bridge and paid a quarter in the basket. Andre pointed at the far bank. That's a damn big dog, Smoker replied. That's a bear. <laughs> Sirens approached, and three police cruisers, lights tumbling, rushed over the bridge the opposite direction. They might know shoplifters, but they got bears wrong, Smoker said. How's that, Wild Kingdom? Bears don't like heights, Smoker said. They climb trees because they got something to hold on to. I can't imagine why he'd try a bridge once, but he ain't doubling back. Smoker directed the truck onto the gravel road, they switched back twice and stopped where the bank bent steep as a blade. Their boot edges skidded as they scrambled the incline and clawed the weeds and rocks to avert falling. At the river bank, the salt blocks, mossy from fall spray from the fall spray, formed a shelf and led to the water. Andre whacked an ankle and hobbled behind Smoker, who loped toward a locust coast. Halfway up one of the trees, a yearling black bear stared at them. Cops' blue lights lit a park on the river's other side where they searched the arcade and food trucks. A wind gust bent the gaunt tree. The bear scrambled for balance. Stay put, 
Smoker said. Near the bear, Andre asked. Just watch him, Smoker said. Smoker hiked from the canyon ten minutes later reappearing with a picnic ham, his rifle, a skinning knife, and a hundred feet of nylon rope. Smoker saw the tunnel under the ham bone, strung one rope, uh, strung one rope and through and knotted the loop. He locked the ham at the bear and missed. The bear sniffed. Smoker tried again, but threw low. With thrown like a girl, Andre said. Smoker handed Andre the ham. Will you Jim Thorpe it up there then? Andre clocked the bear in the head. It roared and batted the air. Andre flung the rope again and once more clouded the bear. It clung tighter to the tree. Smoker demanded the rope back. Go over that way and a little and hoot, he ordered Andre. What? Hoot, Smoker said. Distracting me? Hoot! Maybe it'll remind me in an hour. He forgotten flapped up there, you figure? Andre circled the tree toward the river. He cupped his hands and called. After a while, the bear gazed at him, querulous. Smoker sneaked closer and tossed the ham over a branch. Andre slowly replaced himself next to Smoker. The bear's eyes tracked him. When the rope entered the animal's sightline, Smoker tugged enough to rattle the leaves. The ham moved and the bear sniffed it and leaned forward. Smoker jerked the rope again. The bear tipped and tumbled from the tree. The ham landed nearby and the bear bit into it. Smoker tugged the meat from his mouth. It bellowed. Smoker shoved the rope at Andre and then scurried ahead. Weed him! Andre ascended slowly, not interested in antagonizing the animal. Don't let him catch hold of the food, Smoker said. Better it than me, Andre told him. Smoker hurried farther up, then traversed the steepest grade on all fours, much like the bear might have. He extended his hand for the rope. Andre threw it to him and followed, as did the bear, which managed better traction than the two men. It encircled both paws around the ham, nearly took Smoker off his feet. Smoker yanked back and tore the meat from the bear's embrace. It sniffed again. Its rib bones expanded and faded under its loose skin. It rocked its woolly head. Wind rattled and clacked the ditch leaves. Above, passing cars sounded like the ocean in a seashell. The bear reversed himself for the river. Smoker poked his fingers between his lips and whistled. The bear's ears pricked. It plopped down, breathing heavy. Smoker unholstered the revolver looped into his belt. I was hoping to lead him to the rig and save us driving. A few feet beneath him on the hill, Andre stood between the two. You aren't going to shoot this bear. Have cops give him a better odds? Smoker asked. Besides, I ain't slew a bear in three years. Smoker drew from a cigarette next to Andre scooted the meat down the grade to the bear. The bear flopped the hand and rolled to his side and licked the salty flat. Salty fat. We could haul him, Andre told him. Smoker laughed. And the camper, fool him up there just like we were doing. He'd tear it up and us with him, Andre shook his head. We'd keep him in feet. He'd just eat and shit and sleep. The bear ripped some meat from the bone and rolled like a dog. Smoker blew a breath into the sky. I didn't set out to rescue no bear. You're the one who steered the rig here, Andre told him. I was hoping for a little amusement. Well, Andre said, I ain't leaving that bear for them to shoot, and I ain't allowing you to shoot him. That don't lead too much. Jesus, Smoker said. Think we ought to get him laid too? <laughs> <laughs> the bear ends up continuing on with the with the group. Yeah, bear's important. He thinks he's important. <laughs> so Bruce, can I ask you some questions? Alright. So No math. No math. Um, we've been friends for, we met almost 30 years ago, mm -hmm. like literally almost 30 years ago, and I feel like I, I'm the number one Bruce Holbert fan in the mansion, 
for 30 years. Uh, and I love all of your work so much from the, we were like graduate school together, from the first story of yours that I read in grad school, which I think was Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. Um, to now, and this book is my favorite thing of yours that I've read. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, I, I love your other work, but this book is very funny. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's very dark, and there, and it's funny. the The narrative is funny. Like there, there's a description of a woman who stout, who looks like a legged ham. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there's the a lot of jokes in the that has to do with how the brothers talk to each other, and that that's how they communicate is by making jokes to each other. And, and so I'd love to hear how you think about the place of humor in, in, in your fiction, but specifically in this book, what it's, what it's doing with the darkness that's also there. Well, I think there's a couple of elements to it. Um, you watch somebody fall down on the ice and it's funny until you realize they've broken their arm. And then it's not quite as funny. Uh, and, and I think this book sort of spends a lot of time on that edge. Yeah. Um, and even the characters, they think it's funny, and then they realize it's not funny, but the only way to fix it is to try and be funny. Um, so, and, and that sort of, in, in some ways, it sort of divides the characters, because one of the characters is a little more serious than the other, and uh, Smoker tends to, he tends to give Andre a hard time about not having a sense of humor and taking things to seriously and not being able to let go of the things that cause him pain. Um, the other thing is, I grew up in, uh, in a world where, where men especially, but people in general, dist distrust language. Um, if you talk a lot, you might be a lawyer, and that is bad. <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, they would like you to grow up to, to be a lawyer. You know, your grandparents thought oh, you could be a lawyer. You know, but they, then they also want you to move away. Um, so people talk in a in a sort of code. They they don't really say what they mean. They talk around it, and they tend to. That tends to go all the way to grammar. They, they tend to uh, truncate the language to the point where they'll, they'll get rid of things like prepositional phrases. You know, I, I was reading in, in Grand Coulee and uh, was, people asked me about the language and I said, well, my, I said, my dad never uses prepositional phrases. I don't think he's ever stated a sentence that might require a semicolon. <laughs> and he said, well, that's because I don't know what they are. And I said, well, yeah, but people don't, there's a lot of people who don't know what they are, but they still employ them. But it, it's uh, that condensation I think has a lot to do with humor. You know, it's it's uh, it, it means everything is a punchline a little bit, or there's the potential for a punchline, and there's a bit of give and take between the characters, and it creates a kind of tension that, that is humorous. And then I think the other thing is the two brothers are like a lot of brothers; they uh, they're irritants to one another. You know, and, and they're loyal to each other, but they're also, you know, envious of one another and pressing one another and sort of holding things over one another. So, I, and I think that can be kind of funny. I remember when I was little, like really little, like five years old, my little brother was three years old, and my mom would put us down for naps. And my little brother hated naps and so he would kick the wall and my mom would come in and spank him 
Then five minutes later, I would kick the wall. My mom would go in and spank my little brother again. And I thought that was funnier now. I don't think he thought it was funny. I mean, I remember not long after, uh, you know, like that evening we were eating dinner and he tried to eat my hand with his, stabbed it with a fork and tried to eat it. And my mother, what are you doing? And I said, no, I think we're square now. <laughs> Um, so, you were talking earlier about how this book had been a bunch of different uh, iterations and short stories, and and I read it a long time ago as a short story collection. I told Bruce earlier that I still love the short story collection that when Bruce said that it was going to be a novel, I was really worried before I read it that it had, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the book that I remembered, and when I read it, it's everything that I love about the short story collection. I loved and then more and I, I wonder how when you work on something in a bunch of different forms how you manage to shift it because it's, it's a completely different form now and, and, and also connect to that like how you keep the characters malleable so that they can do what they need to do in a novel even though they were short story uh, characters beforehand. Well, as far as keeping the characters malleable, the most important thing, you know this, is stay out of their way. You know, let them do stuff that surprises you because that's the best stuff. Uh, I do not make plans. Uh, Brian can attest to this. Kobe, too, that uh, I taught high school for 30 years and 25 of them. I made no lesson plans. <laughs> I just showed, I figured, and, and it was because I understood that whatever I planned would be boring compared to what happened when I, if I just showed up and with the students and we just started animating. And, you know, I mean, I recognized, okay, we were going to talk about this book or this story, but uh, to plan something out too much just sucks the suspense from it. And so it's, it's uh, I think it was, you might correct me, but I think it was Yates who said that Hamlet's the best play ever written, and the best part of Hamlet is what Shakespeare left out. And so I think that, that that's part of it, is giving the characters their own, their own room and leaving out explanation, you know, that, that uh, people don't go around explaining themselves. Uh, and that's part of what, what makes it interesting. Uh, as far as putting things together, I think that's a product of my life. Um, I graduated from, from graduate school and went back to working in high school uh, because I liked it. I thought I was good at it. You know, I thought I had something that, you know, I thought I had something I could do, you know, I could offer. And uh, it was a steady paycheck, and that was always nice. I didn't want to drag my kids through the sort of adjunct uh, wandering that, that often comes with, you know, the, the beginning of an of a academic career. Uh, so I wrote in the margins of my life, you know. I, I wrote, uh, you know, I... I lucky to have a wife that I love and like to spend time with and you know my kids were you know we, we did different you know I like to do stuff with them and so I wrote in the margins of my life which meant that I wrote in little chunks and what I ended up doing was sort of stitching the chunks together and I would go from my first three books were written sort of simultaneously and I would go back and forth between, um, you know, when there, you know, when there was some juice, when I felt like, oh, okay, I got something going here, I'd work on it. And then when I was sort of felt like, oh, I'm not sure what to do next, then I'd just jump to another book. Uh, and, and, you know, for me it worked out, it became a process that, that uh, actually I kind of, uh, I think kind of works for me. Yeah, when I uh, teach uh, 
fiction workshops at the university, every day the first day I say, I talk about a conversation that you and I once had in which you told me that coaching basketball is a matter of telling somebody, no, don't sound like that. Nice shot. Whether <laughs> um, we talk about it, like that's what teaching fiction is like, is, is that you, you can't, don't stand like that unless you can make the shot. And that whatever you, whatever advice you have goes out the window. But if you can make the shot, then stand however you want. Exactly, yeah. And uh, so, what do you, do you, this is actually a, a, a current obsession of mine because um, young writers often like to talk about craft and craft mm -hmm. talk and mechanics. And do you think about that stuff when you write? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I think it's more like having a devil sitting on my shoulder. I used to have a cat who, who I swore would bite me whenever I used an adverb. <laughs> because I, I hated adverbs and the cat knew that. I remember, um, yeah, I remember your hatred of adverbs. Oh, yes. You once said, line them up against a wall and shoot them. Shoot them all. No. <laughs> adverbs, I think adverbs are the cholesterol of language. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I tend to, I, I, I tend to, it's, it, it's to the point now where um, there are just several sort of uh, red flags that come up when I'm writing. Uh, and they all really are, they, they end up, I mean, it sounds like, you know, I'm a grammar freak, but they really end up affecting the flow of language. I, I, anytime I can, I can get rid of helping verbs, they're gone. Uh, anytime I can use a transitive verb, a verb that has an object, it stays. Uh, and I'll rearrange sentences in order to, to do that. Uh, ING verbs, I'll do, I mean, they have to pass several tests before they can stay in a sentence. Uh, participial phrases, they're really a problem, you know? And, and it, it sounds like I'm this grammar freak, but what I'm really looking for is just a clean line. And those are things that, for me, tend to muddy the line, you know. And I, I'm not saying that every sentence should be five words long. I think a 250-word sentence is beautiful, but it shouldn't have 251 words in it. So you could, could love to talk about language with you because your language is so beautiful and it, it runs the realm between there's a line in the first page of this that's so simple and perfect that they listen to the beer lights tick. And there, there, are, there are many examples of these perfect, descriptive, very simple sentences, and then longer, muscular prose. The last page of this book is just incredible and beautiful. And do you, how much of that comes as you're composing, and how much of that is editing? Like we're, a we're, lot of it's yeah, editing. Uh, for me, uh, it has to do with, with my ear and what it sounds like. Um, and that's why, you know, my, I have the feeling, I have the, I have the feeling about adverbs that I have is that they don't, <clears throat> they don't sound musical to me. And sometimes music is just a drumbeat, you know, it's not something tremendously lyrical. But, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so I, I would say that, that that comes from sitting down and reshaping things and, and reading things and, and trying to say, uh, we both had a teacher named Alan Gergannis, who was one of the really great teachers of, of writing. And one of the things he used to say is don't put pearls before swine. Um, and what he meant was don't edit a sentence that might not be in the final draft. And so what that did was cut me loose to sort of turn myself loose. And then you come back and you say, okay, now, what part of this craziness are we going to, you know, are we going to keep? What are we going to get rid of? What are we going to add? And so I, I suppose that got me to the, that kind of 
inspiration, I suppose, moved me to to take care of sentences as a, a sort of the, the final touch. And I, I admit to being addicted to sentences. Um, my, my son, who's a wonderful poet, um, says that. Uh, he says, you know, you just like sentences. The only reason you have paragraphs is because people want to see it break once in a while. Um, he said, so I, one of his, one of his, uh, I'll, t I'll tell you maybe the condensational language, which is, he mentioned that, that I think, he wrote a poem called, and it was just, it was a very short poem, it's, uh, uh, the whole poem is, The Fish Have Vision too." And I asked him, well, why do I like this poem, and why does it not seem short? And he said, because you're looking, and the fish are looking. <laughs> and he was right. And a short sentence doesn't necessarily have to be brief, you know, if it contains the if it contains something potent. So we had a, had a teacher in common, but at the same time, Frank Conroy, who always loved to quote Flaubert and say. Uh, live like a bourgeoisie so you can write like a revolutionary. And you were mentioning Holly and your family and you had this close and lovely family life, which is not necessarily reflected in your fiction, if I may say. <laughs> that the, the families, I mean, family is intensely important in your work. And it's sort of about the chaos of family and the the damage that you can do to each other because you love each other. And I, I, I besides the fact that it, it, it took you, 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 we graduated from the graduate school in 1990, and you've published three books now in the past five years. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you have been working all of that time. And I, I'm, I'm I'm, because when I teach, I'm always trying to tell my students the importance of work. This will get around to a question, an actual question. I, I, I'm interested in how you have arranged your life to work, and how the your life with your family has had an effect on the kind of fiction you work. Not just being able to write it but how it's worked its way into the fiction that you do write. Yeah, I think those are two different, I mean, I have two different answers to that question. Uh, one has to do with family, and, and we were talking about, Raymond Carter wrote an essay called Fires, which is about his strongest influences, and, and he said family was his strongest influence because he spent most of his time trying to get away from them. And when I was in graduate school, we read the essay, and one of the few students who had a family was just apoplectic about it. Well, number one, how could you think this? And number two, even if you thought it, how could you write it? And, uh, you know, I, I, it's something I thought about for a long time, and then I, you know, our, we started to have a family, and my, my experience is not only how could you think it, or how could you write it, but that it's not true, you know, that having a family, you know, multiplied my experiences, it multiplied my, you know, uh, I used to say that, you know, when I had my first child, algebra turned calculus, uh, and it was interesting, and I, there were lots of answers I didn't know, but, but you know, it was a, you know, I was on a different level. So, I would say family, in that way, really fed my uh, my experiences. But historically, uh, that's another story. I mean, luckily, my my you know my dad and my mom really attempted to be good parents, um, but uh, they didn't have much. Especially, my dad didn't have much help. His my dad's father was murdered by my dad's grandfather. 
And so my dad really didn't have, from nine months old, he was, you know, his male influences were country music at work. And so as a result, he had cultural sort of uh, signposts for what it meant to be a man. And uh, they weren't tempered by experience. And I didn't fit those signposts, you know. I wasn't really interested in how to adjust a carburetor. And, uh, so as a result, I felt kind of outside of that, you know. I felt, I felt you know, unmale and dysfunctional in some ways. And, um, I don't think my dad meant for me to feel that way. He just didn't know any other way to conduct himself uh, as far as that went. He didn't have any help. So I would say a lot of the difference between my wife Holly and my experiences, and she sometimes has to ring me in because my, my experience is I want my family life to be different than than what I grew up with. And she wants her family life to be similar to what she grew up with because she grew up with a nurturing family. And so sometimes she, she says, you're being unreasonable, Bruce. I say, yes, but who else can I be unreasonable with here? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to see if there are questions from? You guys have questions? Come on. Do you want me to read a little more? Yes, please. Okay. This is how uh, Andre, one of the brothers, met the woman who had become his wife. Uh, her name is Claire. They worked together in a high school, and uh, uh, faculty meetings, Andre carried until Claire entered the room and then hunted a seat behind her or across from her. Making notes, she employed a pencil, but she didn't erase. Instead, slashed through the words and scribbled on. She whispered as she perused handouts of habit calling to reading teacher. Her right cheekbones and narrow jaw pinched her mouth in a pretty way when she spoke and her nose remained out of matters, which is the best one could say of a nose. Her chestnut hair was cut to her shoulders. It curled when she rose early enough to use an iron and lay straight when she did not. She was appealing either way. Andre longed to say so and save her the trouble. Nights when he climbed far enough into the bag, Andre would press his hands together as if in prayer and undo them until his palms separated and he could conjure her face between them. He had encountered prettier women, but none that made him ache so clearly for a life other than his own. After the time change, the evenings grayed early and <clears throat> from a quarter mile behind, a distance enough to argue denial or coincidence, Andre began to trail Claire to her duplex two hills behind the school. She marked themes while she hiked the incline, chewing a red pencil between notes, and didn't divert her attention even while she unlocked her door. Soon, despite cold winds or spitting snow, Andre lingered in an alley's shadows where he, could, where he could view Claire's front window. Evenings, she often halted before the glass to gaze at passing cars or her neighbors exercising their terror. She typically changed to a t-shirt and sweatpants. Her hands clawed her hair like she'd had a nap or been stirred from a book. Seeing her embarrassed him, and he pitched his eyes away down the hill where the house roofs collide, below collided geometries. A month into his vigil, he wrapped a meatloaf sandwich for his dinner and ate comfortable until Claire Gully walked in from behind with a two-foot icicle. His stunned skull sang like a tuning fork as Claire's soap smell passed, so simple it seemed impossible. He lay bleeding until a police tumbling lights approached. A cop's flashlight wand striped the dumpster where he'd taken refuge. Andre stood and hoisted his hands. What are you surrendering over? The cop asked. 
His name was Marcus Pott, but he was two years behind Audrey in high school. Answering to him was one more injustice. You decide, Andre said, I'm not up to it. The cop wagged his light at Andre's cleft scalp. You know the woman in that building? Yes. You gonna fight me? The cop asked. A minor tavern legend to regulars and a scrap Andre accepted blows without regard and offered his own until he grew too tired to lift his hand. Recently, he pinned an iron worker's ears to his skull with a stapler. While the men attempted to claw the staples out, Andre splattered his nose and uprooted his front teeth with a handle. The Honyocker was new to town. No one local or sober had tried Andre for years. I'm not inclined to fight with you, Andre said. Okay, the cock replied. By then, Claire pulled open her door. Oily light from inside spread across the snow-blanched yard. She proceeded in slippers toward them. You, she said. Andre nodded. You deserve to be hit. I know it. The cop didn't move. He was enjoying himself. Claire's brow creased and she blinked. The blood bank took, to, took a pint and Andre guessed he'd leak nothing less. It warmed his cheek but froze in his hair. I did that? Claire said. Andre shrugged. Head wound, he said. They always bleed worse than they are. The cop, sighed, or the cop signed Andre in the hospital, emergency desk, and then suggested he review his manners. He saw no need to cut them or offer him Miranda. Andre had not even made a successful crime of it, which demoralized him farther. further. Despite much study, Andre had not acquired the element most necessary for romance in this world. The capacity to appear detached in a tragic and compelling manner presses a woman to discover why. Instead, women saw Andre as plain country, a flat lot on a town road like any other. An abundance of, an abundance of heart and a scarcity of self-regard served him poorly. But a man suffering such who hadn't swallowed a gun barrel was likely not just dirt and rock and scrub. An hour later, the doctor knit Andre's eyebrow with 15 stitches and sheared half his scalp so he, so he could add 20 more. Andre listened to the scissors snip and contemplated the four miles home. He could phone Smoker, but only after assembling a tail that justified his injuries. He narrowed the possibilities to brawling Californians or a slow-moving 4x4 on the icy streets by the time the hospital reached him and he found the exit. Local urchins had shot out the parking lot, parking lot lights with pellet guns, and so Andre didn't recognize Claire's approach until she was too close for escape. Should I be flattered, Claire asked, or were you just in it for an eyeful? I hope you're not armed, Andre said. She reversed her jeans pockets to demonstrate she was no danger, but there was still the jacket, so Andre steadied his feet and loped for town. Twenty yards and frozen sidewalks spilled into all fours. Claire's hand hooked his elbow and steered him up. I'll see you home, she said. In her car, Andre pointed toward the trailer court, but Claire traveled another direction and parked at a stop-and-go. Inside, she brought tall copies, which left Andre the prospect of bearing his embarrassment both awake and sober. Claire dipped her face into her cup and while, while Andre waited for the cream to cool his own. Our first date, she said. This isn't a date, he told her. Why not? Because if it was, I'd be worried about getting kissed at the end. Claire arched her eyebrow and bent across the emergency brake. Their lips clobbered bluntly, and Andre lost a good share of his coffee in his lap. Scalded, he gasped, and his legs straightened, which scuffed his scalp against the roof. He put his hand to the wounds, but the stitches seemed to hold. Claire retreated to her seat. She tipped herself over the steering wheel, and her hands latched her knees. A long hair clung to her ring finger, the other end twisted in the heater's exhaust. Light through the window flickered in the strand. Andre extended his finger to touch it. Claire hurried her hand away, then changed horses and plunked it in his. I'm sorry, Andre said. I'm not a cousin. Me neither, Claire told him. Please don't think I am. Claire fit a straw through her coffee top. The radio played a commercial, but Andre couldn't make out what for. I never saw you close to naked, he said. Claire gazed out the windshield. 
The market lights made the snow more starry than the sky. I went home early, before I ate always. He scared me as always. Claire enjoyed their hands and stroked a finger on his split hairline. He winced. I used to pinch my brothers when, until they'd bleed, she said quietly. I guess I have a mean streak. She returned her hand to the shifter ball. Her fingers tapped the enamel. She wanted them to doctor. You spied on me in school, she said. Yeah, I guess I'm none too sly. Someone else pointed it out to me, Stack. Stack Edwards was in charge of PE and wore t-shirts even in winter. Andre hadn't seen them as much as sit together. Claire took Andre's hand in hers and then raised them both. He didn't like public displays of affection. Their coffee depleted, Andre excused himself to refill the cups. A Williams girl tended the till. She had a gabby bent and the line went 3D. And when Andre returned, Claire's eyes were closed and her head rested on the window. The temperature dropped near zero, a hard freeze that would require ranchers like his father to axe creek beds to, the water, to water stock. A yellow mongrel crept from beneath the street light. Her steps grasped the still air like a sawyer's saw. She paused to sniff an empty can, and her ribs fluttered. For a moment, she eyed Andre, then vanished in the dark. Andre perched the copies on the car top. Back in the grocery, she paid for a, he paid for a handful of jerky and fished five scraps from the jar. He exited through the back door and sat on the concrete steps. Outside, Andre regarded the highway from the coulee out. He traveled it a hundred times at once. College returning home, Highway 2, first year at the Air Force Base, then Reardon, then Lincoln County seat of Davenport, then Creston in the Scablands. Andre recalled seventh grade basketball, a balcony extended over one of the gymnasium's corners where the Creston team always forced the ball out of bounds, then blanketed the inbounder with their tallest player. Their opponents had to bounce a pass between his legs or risk the balcony. Eight miles later, Wilbur and more wheat country, million dollar land. From Wilbur, you divert for the coulee through more, through more wheat until the highway descended into the rocks. Once an Ice Age glacial dam near Clark Fork stopped a Montana full of water. The thaw blasted the country into a mile-wide gutter. The place looked ravaged by giants. The highway drops and the coulee walls rise and the sky becomes just a block of blue. Then you see the river, the reservoir, farther the mass of concrete that backs the Columbia into Canada. The dog whimpered in the shadows and squatted and leapt for the open dumpster. Her claws scrapped the metal and the sound doubled in the cold stillness. Andre skidded a jerky piece across the frozen lot. The dog halted. She inched herself to the meat, sniffed, then ate. He offered her more, each closer until she arrived at his feet. Andre held out his hand and she licked them clean. A piece of him knew Claire would be asleep in the warm car when he returned, and it would be as if he had never left her, while another remained certain he would be absent, or she would be absent, and whatever had happened between them had not. Claire awoke an hour later, Andre's shoulder pillowing her cheek, her mouth wet, a line on his sleeve. Your coffee's bad, he told her. You want some more? Claire shook her head. It keeps me awake, as you can see. She yawned. Do you see anyone? Just a doctor when I'm down with something, he said. To date, I mean. Andre didn't reply. Finally, he piled the, he piled the two empty cups on the floor into his own, <clears throat> then stuffed them with napkins that remained. You do, Claire said. What? See someone. Andre laughed. Claire wrapped herself in the arms of her jacket. Why are you cleaning up my car if not to go? Under his stop. I told him to shove off because of you. Stack, I mean. Claire said. She dipped her shoulders under her coat and offered her hand to make an end of it. Andre took it. Her skin was as smooth as when he first touched it, and his as thick. Her words were all he'd had of a woman's voice outside grocery checkers and barmaids in two years, and the kiss, his first not inflicted by alcohol or mistletoe since high school. The wadded napkins had unfolded inside the cup like petals on a flower. Their slumping middle soaked with the dregs. He undid one and let it float to the carpet, then another until she joined him, 
laughing, and soon the floor was cluttered with their mess, and more than <clears throat> and more when they rummaged scraps from the glove box and under the seats. And then he goes and gets drunk. <laughs> Any more questions? <laughs> um, no, he doesn't. He gets drunk. And then they worry about him having a hangover, so they put Alka-Seltzer in, uh, in, in his bucket. I was just curious, real quick. I know you were saying earlier that you don't do a lot of planning, you let your characters uh, sort of live and be, but you must do, uh, I was just hoping you could speak a little bit to your character work. But beyond, especially if you're bouncing from one project to the next, I feel like it would be easy to come up with something interesting that a character could do. And if I'm on this project, I'll have him do that. But if I'm over here, I just go, well, maybe she could just do it. So how do you sort of keep those in line? What, what, I just was hoping you speak to your character work early on in the process so that you know this is how this person speaks, this is how they behave. So uh, they can't do what this other person does. Uh, sometimes that's an issue, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know. My agent accuses me of plundering from myself. Um, sometimes it, it's, it's, you know, you, you get, it's less character, to be honest, than it is a description. And, you know, you say, God, that description really gets it right. And so you forget that it's in a story, and then it appears in a book, and then it's like, you forget that it's in a book, and, and it's like it fits somewhere else. So. That's something I have to watch out for the way I work, but but character-wise, um, I really believe in approaching things from a sort of organic approach, and maybe it's because I taught high school for as long as I did. You know, you, you sit in front of a high school class, and you got thirty people who are way smarter than you, and if you have any sense at all, you sort of get to know them. And they're all separate, you know, they have things in common. But you you end up seeing them as, as individuals. And so I think that characters work the same way for me. That the characters are all, they're all separate because I know them in, in separate ways. And um, you know, they respond in ways that I think are natural for them to respond. And if they don't, there's this like tuning fork in my head that says, bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I sort of have grown to trust that. It's, criticism is a strange thing. Um, the, the criticism that I find the most accurate is the one is the criticism that makes me feel the most defensive <laughs> because it like it, you know because it's hitting a fear that I already have and the other stuff you can say ah you know you can blow that off but you know when I feel like wounded that's what I pay attention to all right well thank you thank, thank you. you so much yeah thank you guys You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.